Hi, and welcome back to On the Nose, a Jewish Currents podcast. I'm Nathan Goldman, the managing editor of Jewish Currents, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, we're celebrating the recent release of Civil Service, a book of poems by our culture editor, Claire Schwartz. I'm here with Claire and Chance Erolin, the book's editor at Grey Wolf Press. Civil Service is a daring study of the violence woven into our world, from everyday encounters to the material of language itself. The poems unfold in three main sequences, a quartet of lyric lectures, a fragmentary narrative that follows a cast of archetypal figures named for the coordinates of their complicities with power, the dictator, the curator, the accountant, and so on, and a series of interrogation scenes centered on a spectral fugitive figure named Amira. The book evokes and undoes familiar forms as it works out the possibilities of a poetry oriented toward reimagined modes of reading and living. Because the book presents itself as explicitly engaged with the texts that influenced it, it includes notes and a bibliography. We also read three pieces with which civil service is in conversation. Paul Salon's Death Fugue in Stretto and Edmund Jabez's At the Threshold of the Book from the Book of Questions. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk with both of you about civil service. Claire, would you start us off by reading a poem from the book? Lecture on loneliness. The first woman was not burdened with firsts, only was, not yet bound by a name, uncalled for. Only history makes her lonely, only after makes her first. Of course, this is an origin story, lonely as any birth. Loneliness, the distance between history and what history might have been. The thread unspools, the umbilical severed. Why do your books clog the doorway to the past? A blanket of yellow petals. The rain, little fists beating back the dead who want only to braid your hair. You built a world against such softness. You arranged an alphabet against loneliness. I scale your walls. That is my practice. In the schools, children line up, chant, to be alone among, to be without among, to be among without, to be without alone to trade your wonder for knowing gladly, to confuse the loss of nothing with the loss of nothing. You knew, then you knew more. You diminished the world with your knowing. The distance between you and your quiet grows, a ladder receding into the sky. The first woman of your life stitches her face into your sleep like your grandmother stitched coins into the lining of her coat and ran. You wake, run through the woods, jingling. The sound of your skirt accompanies you. You forget your sisters. You make of the hour a horse, ride off. I've ridden those horses, your lost hours. The children lick honey from the letters. The righteous man climbs the tree. On the first branch, he cuts off his hair. At the top, he discards his body. A person can be with a word like they can be with a body. Wash it, accompany it, be changed by its nearness. The woman lays all the lavender at your feet. The brown fields balk. 
You scatter flowers along the sidewalks, paint a mural of a rainforest in a prison. The years ascend the mirror like sea level. A face breaks off like an iceberg. It is your mother's. The years add. The years subtract. You are always wrong. Take me with you. You populate your memory with her scent and her language. You remember so little. You are in bed. In a room down the hall, words exchanged in the dark. Distance sands the words to noise. The room is the world. Three daffodils later and you shed your memory like a skin. No matter how much you water it, the stone refuses its flowering. You strike the stone. It withholds the river. The letters are lanterns and lead to no house. The townspeople emptied their language and could no longer meet each other there. Was the language empty or was it open? The truth lost its coordinates. A weathered man dusting snow from the ridge of his ear. The name of an old lover assails him. No, the light hurts. He closes her name like a book. If you excise me from your memory, I will enter your blood. Little capillaries, little trees, little heart governed by a solitary rain cloud. The only laws, be radiant, be heavy, be green. Tonight, the dead light up your mind like an image of your mind on a scientist's screen. The scientists don't know, and too much. In the town square, in the heart of night, a delicacy like the heart of an artichoke, a man dances cheek to cheek with the infinite blue. Of course, his mother's death looms so much larger in his life than her life ever did. An endless flowering, what is gone, scant still against what will never be. No language for the engulfing mouths of the not become. After you, no one asks. Look how you shredded the quiet with your promises. Look how you lost her anyway. Look now, no quiet to accompany you. Your words are sisterless. No, no one asks after you. I am the one who is asking, a finger plumbing the depths of your night. It rained in your room. You mistook the ceiling for sky. The rain allots you just one glass. It has to last your life. The rain extinguishes summer. You behead the flowers. You forget their names. To share what you love with one you admire and be scorned. Fingernails along your innermost parts. Every embrace a rehearsal of separation. Your mother's life halved like a peach, the stubborn pit exposed to weather. One morning in a shop, you meet someone who wears your hair, who speaks your name like the one who named you. The bells on the door clink as you leave with your butter. 
to be suspended between oneself like the man who balanced on a wire between mountains, then tumbled toward death like a helicopter seed. A burial is a seed planted in the wrong season. To be the wrong season. To work all your life in the name of family, each labored hour a brick in the road leading you away. A name is not a leash. I will be in the field watching the tulips grow. The women come with aprons full of hours. The world aches unpassed over by the eyes of the dead. The dead have no eyes. Lonely, lonely living. Do all of your antics recover the radiance, and was it worth it? Go on, hang the stars from the sky. This world is a pageant of your making. The hour of forgetting is a brown hour. The house of forgetting looks like any other. The trees are dark and full of language. The trees speak, but not to you. First, the year without music. Then, in a minor key, in a dead language, the woman sang this song. We were the last people on earth. We made a world between us. We spent the earth. I made my body a cloak and took you in. In all that you, I lost myself. I traveled the length of my interior, and there I wasn't. My language was a symptom of a history I couldn't touch. I petitioned the dead for company. No one came. The butterflies fell like autumn leaves. The shells washed up on the beach, empty as God's ears. We were the last. I called this life. Here, a door, and like that, we went. Man, thank you, Claire, for that. And and for everybody who's not on screen with us right now, this is, this is Chance. Claire, I was struck reading along as, as you read about something you said uh, at, at the launch event the other day of, of the blatant inadequacy of reading Amira's voice in this poem alongside. And I find that that speaks so resonantly to what I find so really kind of compelling and intriguing about these is that, you know, it's, it's so difficult for my literal mind to track the voice in like an ethical and moral position, right? Where it, oscillates between being so grounded in the world as it is, right? Whether that's chastisement or comfort, and also in this kind of possibility of an otherwise. And it really disrupts what I look for, which I'm embarrassed about, in, in what I think of as a lecture, in this kind of instruction of, of how to be. And it, it makes me get, have to engage with it kind of critically in ways that I'm not always prepared for because it, it seems to shift so quickly. And I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit in, into what the kind of positioning of, of the speaker or speakers of, of these poems is and, and how you intend lecture as this kind of intersection of, of writing and reading and, and living in the world as it is and could be. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for that. I Well, I'll just say for anyone who hasn't looked at the actual book, there's four lectures that are kind of not exactly centerpieces. They're not, they're not central to the text in any kind of organizational way, but they're sort of nodes of, of thought and gathering. There's a figure who runs down the right, right-hand margin called Amira, who's sort of a fugitive figure who I, I kind of thought of as someone who couldn't exist fully or who wasn't able to be fully visible in the world as it was configured now. 
so to me, the lectures, well, I guess I'll just say I, I think a lot about the form of the lecture. I think a lot about the sort of prescription of, you know, what people talk about is what can go into poems, um, the sort of impetus not to be dogmatic in certain ways. Now, I once heard the poet Salma Sharif say that Americans don't like kind of dogmatic poetry because we don't like to be told that we don't know things. But I think there's another another kind of risk of dogma, which is that the thought is kind of done for you. And sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes there are you know, things that just need to be said that, there, that aren't complicated and that are unequivocally true and should be done for us on the level of thought. But I think there's also a question about, you know, really just what it means to be here together, sort of politics on the most basic sense of the social. And so I wanted to think about these kind of nodes of organization, of social forms, and how we might kind of come together differently around some of the animating concepts. And so I was interested in the idea of a lecture as something that could put forward some of these baseline ethical positions, but also, you know, the lecture sort of holds at its root reading as well as speaking and being told something. So I wanted to think about reading as a kind of social practice in a space where meaning is negotiated and worked out together. It's interesting to think of the person at the lectern in a position of authority and also deferring so much, deferring their authority to others for the practice of reading. Totally. I think what feels usually dogmatic or authoritative about the form is there's an idea, like lecture assumes a kind of election or enunciation of a speaker and then the cohesion of an audience to whom the speaker is instructing in a dogmatic or didactic way. But I feel like in this book, like Claire was talking about, the lectures do take that form, but they also sort of undermine it. They tend to speak out into a kind of unknowing. I was struck in this reading by the line, you diminish the world with your knowing, this idea of like knowledge as not just a distillation or an addition, but like a kind of subtraction. It seems to me that all of the lectures in the book I'll just like say the titles for people who haven't read them. One is there's lecture on time, lecture on the history of the house, lecture on confessional poetry, and then lecture on loneliness. I think in different ways, they all sort of feel engaged with ideas of unknowing or loss. It was making me think about, I don't know, just the idea of like the, the lecture as a form that we'd often think of as concerned with like instruction and presence, but activating valences that are actually about subtraction and loss or i was thinking about the idea of like even going back far in like the western lineage that like the treatises we have from aristotle that are are, like thought to be lecture notes because most of his actual corpus is like not available to us so thinking in one way of just the way that like having a lecture on the page is sort of admitting that it's not the thing itself in a way if 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 the thing of a lecture is it's kind of unfolding in time and an audience and space that it's sort of acknowledging that text is always kind of in relation to some other thing or is a, is mediated or a copy or, or something like that, which felt like that's a kind of motif or concern in the book as a whole is this idea of, of everything present also being a kind of absence. Yeah. I'm thinking back to what Chance said also about the kind of question of the position of the speaker in the lecture poems and there are, as you mentioned, Nathan, like kind of like figures or characters who are named for their occupations who run through. And I was thinking about those as kind of very locatable positions in a certain way. And the lectures actually where the sort of position of, of the speaker 
is sort of dislocated and the question about the possibilities of reconstitution in those spaces really comes up. I mean, I think, you know, Nathan, you mentioned like the relationship between presence and, and loss. And I guess just to state the obvious, loss is also the condition for reimagining what is or what could be, that there's no way without the loss of the forms that sort of organize our world right now that we might actually fully move into the possibilities of an otherwise. Yeah, I think that's something that feels so present and alive to me in the book is this way that I think sometimes in certain kinds of like political speech or political work, I feel this this kind of tension between acknowledging or inviting in an engagement with loss alongside the work of like rebuilding things. You know, one like articulation of it is in this like slogan of like, don't mourn, organize. But I think, yeah, there's just different ways that in certain spaces, loss is put as like its own thing to deal with in a separate way. But I feel like the melancholy character of a lot of the poems to me in civil service feels like it's, I don't know, existing alongside that reimaginative impulse. It was making me think about not only the ways that reimagining involves like the loss of what is but 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 the ways in which just like ordinary losses already teach us something about how mutable things are yeah I, I like the word melancholy like I, I appreciate that reading and I feel like Freud talks about melancholy as the kind of unhealthy relationship to or the kind of pathological relationship to grief you know as the sort of lost object is not properly assimilated And I guess I've been thinking about the sort of political possibilities of refusing to assimilate the loss, particularly in contexts where the violence that produces the loss is still ongoing. It feels actually really important to refuse that kind of metabolism that would would have us sort of keep recreating the conditions of that violence. That makes me think a lot of Amira, right, of this figure that I think, you know, you feel a sense of loss for throughout the book because of Amir's removal and half tension of being. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when Amir does get the chance to speak more fully, which I know kind of came later in, in the book's development and felt like a really necessary piece, perhaps to like mitigate that grief and talk about the poem Blue and what, what that means to give Amir that space, even while holding Amira at that kind of liminal space just at the edge of the book or the marginal space, I should say. Yeah, I think there's a kind of almost narrative problem sometimes when we talk about, I don't know, revolution, for lack of a better word, but the sort of totalizing action that feels necessary to move from this world to the next one. I mean, it's the narrative climax in so many ways, and often that can be the sort of end point. And because there's a question about what it means to get from here to there, that's a kind of social question that can only be really worked out in the process of doing it. I think it can be really hard to imagine what's actually on the other side, you know, what's what's really this world that we're moving toward. But it felt important to me to signpost and to not quite make tangible, because I don't think that's possible, and I don't think this world has earned that kind of proximity, but to at least hold the horizon visible of the possibilities of another kind of relationship and a kind of relationship that might come more fully into view with a closer reading really for lack of a better word with kind of deeper attention and deeper engagement and I wanted her to have enough space to sort of 
articulate the fact of her stance, just to signpost that she's there and that there is another side. Yeah, I feel like it's so striking in just reading the book when you come to it. It feels surprising, I think, on my first read through the idea that there will be this little like flourishing because so much of the presence of Amira is in these like glimpses and like Chance mentioned is on the right margin and is in also maybe it's helpful to say it's in the book. Amira's speech is in like lighter type. It's in like gray type. So yeah, I think there's something sort of, I, I mean, I found it just like expectation defying and like a really useful way, this way that Amira does like get to speak. I think maybe Claire, you should just like read blue because it's short. And also I think maybe gives a sense that it's like, it's, I don't know. I think there's something about the texture of the, of the poem itself that gives an idea of how, like, even when Amira gets this like chance to speak at length, it's not easily cognizable. There is still something about it that speaks to the sense, I think, of what you're talking about. That's like Amira is coming from a place where it's like there's a distance or something. If you don't mind reading it, I think it would maybe help speak to this. Sorry. Blue. Came late to language. Once we were thrashing. The sea was wine dark flash of wing and nothing was the same the sea kissed the sky and now day is then night is more what did you lose in becoming family what dazzling otherwise do i name when i address you yeah there's something in just it really feels like this kind of glimpse out into something where you can sort of feel an intimacy but also not be able to like fully articulate it or something which feels like very suited to this kind of glimpse outward. It was making me think about lines in the first lecture in the book, lecture on time, a way out to be with otherwise, who hasn't felt freed in the presence of someone's deep thinking. And just this idea of like glimpses of like ways out that occur through like certain kinds of presence and certain kind of another's thinking. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it, even though there are so many characters with their you know, various relationships and in, in you know most most of the poems in the book right i would, I would say maybe the, the, the bulk of the pages at least there's a kind of removal of feeling in that right and, uh, and obviously as a reader it's i mean for me it's a very kind of emotional and striking and damning experience to read those narratives but it's not felt in the way that blue is or even i think some of the lectures are maybe, maybe ironically you know like I, I i know i was harping on this a lot you know on the edits but i'm like three out of four of them like contain a song within the lecture or, or what I think of a song. And I'm leaning over into hippie sensi moshi territory right now, but I'm like, oh yeah, that otherwise it is, it is love. It is that kind of, kind of intimacy and, and the possibility of that in, in, inside of this atrocity, which uh, I think is complicated and, and part of what's so uh, interesting and, and makes continually engaging with the book. So, so fruitful. Thanks for saying that. I'm thinking too of, this interview that I read with Soretta Morgan a couple of years back, and someone asked her, it's just kind of that standard question of what it means to like aestheticize politics, whatever that means. And she said something I think about a lot, which is the problem is really the anesthetic, you know, that we're asked not to fully feel what exists because if, if we could, then it wouldn't go on. And I think part of the project of civil service is really to insist what I know to be true for myself is that, thought really is a register of feeling and thought really is a kind of it's a kind of texture of social engagement it's not mutually exclusive from sentiment it's really a way at least it's a way that I know to put myself close to to other people and to be together yeah that's I think that's so interesting I guess I sometimes encounter this sort of thought that that 
poetry and fiction too that engages a mode that feels more like what people would call like conceptual or intellectualized is like sort of on the other side from feeling I feel like I encounter this a lot just because it's a poem I really love and when people talk about John Ashbery a lot is this idea of oh it's like really abstractly intellectualized which is like true in one sense but like when I read him I also find him to also be like a very deeply feeling poet and so yeah I mean I think that's helpful to sort of undermine that distinction I think that unfolds a lot in civil service and the way that these like modes of questioning and thinking feel like very felt it alive. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a, there's a challenge to a false dichotomy, definitely in poetry as, as I, you know, experience people talking about it and definitely in theory of this thing saying, you know, Oh, if it's so intellectual, you're not putting yourself into the book, but like, why is that politic? Why is that intellect not as closely associated with that? interiority whether it's emotional or otherwise and i think that that distance that we have from the interiority of the curator and and the archivist and 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 so on and so forth is made more palpable by the kind of relentless diving into it in 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 the lectures and in and in amira's um presence yeah i'm I'm glad you brought up the kind of seeming absence of access to interiority in the question of those figures and i'm really interested to kind of talk about that and ask about that to like give a little more context for people who haven't read the book yet, many of the poems center on these series of figures, and we get them named, like Claire said, by their jobs, basically, which I think also tend to function as sort of how they're positioned in terms of power. And those names are capitalized, and so it, they function as names. But one question I just have for both of you is how to like even think of them, because I think I had, you know, I've referred to them as like characters at certain points. I heard your conversation the other day with Kamran Javadizade, Claire, where I think you referred to them, like using the word figures for them. One thing it made me think about, I often am thinking about this, the novelist William Gass had this kind of concept of character, and he had this sort of ongoing debate with the novelist John Gardner about what a character is. And he took a very philosophical, conceptual thing where he said, well, a character is something like a linguistic construction that in a work, other kinds of language tend toward these like eddies of language. And that's what a character is. I mentioned only because it's, I think it's a notion that's sometimes taken as like a little like callous or cold or something versus a notion that's like, oh, a character is like an imagined person or like has some relation to this kind of more like warm or empathetic or relatable idea. But whether or not we take them to be characters, I was sort of thinking of it in relationship to these figures because they do feel like hollowed out in a certain way, which I think in one way allows them to sort of fit over the world or like, I'm just interested in the ways that they feel like these kind of like shells or something like that. It felt to me like there's something going on there in the way they kind of like activate, but also resist like an empathetic impulse or an impulse toward like thinking of them in relation to people in the world. So I'd just be interested to talk more about what you both make of those figures. I really do think of them as figures in the sense of, I think of them as kind of locations of social configurations. You know, I think it's easy to assume that the job titles, which are capitalized, stand in for their names, but I really think of them as standing in for their locations. I think of them as kind of place names almost. You know, there's the kind of slippage between work and occupation and, you know, really thinking about the kind of social spaces that are occupied through these various practices and habits that are then called to jobs. And I think the question about interiority is a really interesting one 
what comes to mind immediately is that they can't have an interiority because they're sort of open to be occupied. And the kind of question about whether or not the reader recognizes themselves or chooses to occupy those spaces or the relationship between the world outside of the book and the world of the book as it kind of enters into those spaces is really an open question. And it's not one that can kind of be figured in terms of the interiority of something that can be called a character in the sense of a, of an individual person who could be then taken out in that position would no longer exist. The position continues to be open and the location really continues to be a question. Was there ever the thought that there would be an editor, a capital E editor in there, <laughs> which I think would have been delightful and challenging <laughs> maybe in civil service too. Um, but um <laughs> No, I think that's so real. And that's part of what, you know, I mean, I'll speak personally, I think that in really trying to get into the culpability, right, and, and, and the complicity, right, that I think that the book is really confronting the reader with, right, for me, the first place that I had to kind of stop and like, look at myself was in the poems that really feature the curator. And in the way that that works, and that's you know me superimposing an interiority onto that in, in a way that may or may not be useful in a final read of the poem, but felt like a necessary part of the process for me. And what feels so striking, and what I think you just articulated really well, which I'm not maybe repeating, is this kind of flattening of self into these locations and how these locations of power themselves. And actually, I would love if you would push back against this if if, if this is not what you're intending, but how those positions are necessarily flattening how those locations of power and those just configurations of power relations are inhuman in a way. That sounds right. Sick. <laughs> no, that sounds right. And I think it's, you know, I think it goes back to the question of the lectures too, and, and sort of helps me to articulate why I understand thought really is as a kind of, I don't mean human in like a humanistic enlightenment tradition sense, but as a, as a kind of practice that gets to the thickness of social life, you know, as, as you're, pointing out that that kind of thickness can't exist in these roles. It's just, it's helping me to understand sort of why we need other social configurations in order to meet each other differently. That made me think of this line in the poem, diet, questions are not in the stenographer's realm of responsibility. The stenographer is one of these figures, but just the idea of like, there's these kind of designations, like parameters of like inside and outside that feels like anti-human. It feels like the kind of mode of inquiry of the lectures and of like Amira contravenes those designations. And this feels really related to me to just like language itself somehow, where it's like a lot of the the figures we meet, their positions seem to be a lot about like, not only are they locations, but they are like arranging things in a certain way, often to do with language. I was thinking partly about like, so one of them is the dictator. There's also an old dictator but how dictate contains this like language meaning in itself, as well as being obviously about like a kind of governance. And then we also have like the stenographer and the curator, the accountant. There are different ones who are sort of like in a broad sense, kind of arranging text in the world is how I was thinking about it. So it seemed like the book feels like in that way, it's partly invoking this sense of like language as a space of contravention and possibility, but also a space of disciplining and hemming in and containing the world as it is. It sort of has both of those in it. I guess it doesn't feel to me like a book that has just a um, 
utopian understanding of language, even as it's like material is material for trying to push out from a broken world is also language. Yeah, I think it's, it feels very related to questions of grammar and syntax, you know, as far as those are the kind of arrangements of thought and what makes certain kinds of thought and relation possible, or I'm thinking of like Du Bois's idea of sort of the limits of allowable thought that are kind of hemmed in grammatically or syntactically. You know, the, the kind of syntax of the poems with the figures named for their occupations is, is fairly standard. The syntax starts to break apart a lot more in the lectures. And I think what, what wasn't able to be heard when I read Blue is, I think it sounds red. It sounds much more aligned with kind of traditional sentences, but there aren't any periods. The lines are very short. There's a real disjuncture between the expected unit of the sentence and the, the way that the language meets the eye on the page. And I kind of think about the possibility between those as where something else might happen in language as the kind of space where reconfiguration might become possible. So that is sort of where I think of Amira on one hand and the lectures as departing from what can't happen in the space of the work figure poems. This might be a good space to like talk a little bit about or maybe read a little bit from the Salon poems because I feel like the transformation from one to the other feels like it's really related to this. Sure. Really, you know, I started this by reading Lecture on Loneliness. And if you're familiar with Paul Salon's Strato, which we'll read a little bit from, um, you can hear that a lot of the language kind of comes from that or speaking to that poem. Should we just go ahead and, and read some? I think we could read like a, a little bit from each of them. Okay. Why don't I read a little bit of The Death Fugue? And then if you want to read a little bit of that you had marked from Strato Chance, does that sound okay? Sure. Okay. So I'll read just some of Salon's death fugue. This is in Pierre Joris's translation. Black milk of morning, we drink you evenings. We drink you at noon and mornings. We drink you at night. We drink and we drink. We dig a grave in the air. There one lies at ease. A man lives in the house. He plays with the snakes. He writes, he writes when it darkens to Deutschland, your golden hair, Marguerite. He writes and steps in front of his house and the stars glisten and he whistles his dogs to come. He whistles his juice to appear, let a grave be dug in the earth. He commands us play up for the dance. Black milk of dawn, we drink you at night. We drink you mornings and noontime. We drink you evenings. We drink and we drink. A man lives in the house. He plays with the snakes. He writes. He writes when it turns dark to Deutschland. Your golden hair, Marguerite. Your ashen hair, Shulamit. We dig a grave in the air. There one lies at ease. I know it's intense to like read part of that poem and then like pass over it. But I think maybe what's worth like saying at least to, in, in introduction is that, you know, for people who don't know, Salam was writing in the, in the wake of the Holocaust and the wake of the deaths of his family. And I think this is a, a poem that like engages pretty directly with that violence. And in a way that, I mean, I think it's like an incredible poem, um, but in a way that I think you can hear even in just like my bad reading of Pierre Joris's great translation is that, has this kind of musicality to it, this like kind of intoxicating rhythm that I think is part of what like makes the poem so effective and what it's doing, but that I know from the way that Joris has talked about it, that that Salon later came to feel was perhaps like poetically irresponsible or that because of like ways that the poem was received and ended up sort of being taught in Germany, that he felt that the 
euphony and beauty of the poem alongside the violence it was speaking about felt somehow maybe like irresponsible or like it's something that had to be undone in a different way. Yeah, I think what's kind of striking about that poem with, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be a scholar on Salon, but with what I know about him and his work, and I think also in conversation with civil services, it's kind of striking how literal it is, which is not what I associate with the kind of language breaking quality that feels so crucial to his writing, either within the German language and in the wake of the Holocaust and just in everything that I connect with in the poems themselves generally. Do you want to read part from Stretto? Because I think part of the idea of reading these poems together is that it was a kind of rewriting or revision of the of the death fugue. I think people will immediately hear it in the language. Yeah. This is from Pierre Joris's translation of Stretto. To the eye go to the moist hurricanes. Hurricanes from whatever, particle flurries, the other you know this. We read it in the book. It was opinion. Was, was opinion. How did we grasp each other with these hands? And it stood written that, where? We put a silence over it, poison stilled, huge, a green silence, a sepal, a thought of plant life hung from it. Green, yes, hung, Yes, under spiteful skies of, yes, plant life. Yes, hurricanes, particle flurries. There remained time, remained to try it with the stone. It was hospitable. It didn't interrupt. How good we had it. Gritty, gritty and stringy, stocky, dense, clustery and raying, knobbly, level and clumpy, loose, branching, he, it did not interrupt. It spoke, like speaking to dry eyes before it closed them. Spoke, spoke, was, was. We did not let go, held tight in the midst a poor structure, and it came, came up to us, came right through, sewed invisibly, sewed at the last membrane, and the world, a thousand crystal, formed. I mean, this might be very simplistic, but just trying to think of how I like respond to the a poem like that and the Salon's poems as his like work moves in that direction. And then also how it relates to moments in like civil service is there's a kind of experience of like attempted apprehension that gets like continually disrupted. It feels to me both at times and often like frustrating. And it also feels at other times or sometimes at the same times generative. And there's something about that kind of opacity that is also open or that at various moments can feel both frustrating in a, in a sense of like trying to say something, but not being able to, or trying to just like, yeah, just trying to understand, but not being able to, I don't know. There's just, it feels to me like, I think there's a reason people sometimes talk about work like that is like difficult in a negative sense. That just feels really bound up with the sense of possibility, even though sometimes a sense of frustration doesn't feel like a sense of possibility. It just made me think again of this part from that was from the lecture on loneliness that Claire opened with. The townspeople emptied their language and could no longer meet each other there. And there's a response. This is from Amira. Was the language empty or was it open? Something about that idea feels related to me to this like syntax breaking kind of work. Yeah, I mean, earlier, Nathan, you mentioned the kind of social movement between the poems. And I wonder if it's worth just staying there for a little bit because I do feel like it has to do so much with the formal choices that Salon 
made in Stretto. So I guess just to say a little bit more about that, you know, Salon wrote Todesuga and it was pretty immediately taken up. You know, it was like taught in German schools. It was kind of revered by German critics. It was talked about as a kind of poem of reconciliation. It was sort of taught for its formal elements and extracted of its context. And obviously this was horrifying to him. And he sort of committed to not musicalizing in the same way, as you mentioned. And I think you can really sort of hear the difference between the commitments to rhythm and Todas and the commitments to rhythm, which still exists, but there's no like lulling in Stretto. It feels like differently staccato, differently contrapuntal. And so, I mean, to me, this is just kind of an amazing question about, you know, what does it mean to revise with the world's reading in mind? I mean, I think that can be a really dangerous prospect but I think it also is kind of everything. You know, what does it mean to make work that doesn't lend itself to the kinds of extractive impulses that are the very condition for the violence that you're trying to write against? And one thing that happens in Stretto is that he brings in Hiroshima, you know, he kind of implots the fascist violence of the Nazi Holocaust in the global context in which it took place. And this feels really, really important because, you know, he started this, I think, in 58. And this is really the moment when German society, but also French society, where he's writing from, is really reconstituting its Nazi impulses. You know, Maurice Pauvin, who was responsible for the deportation of, I think, 1,600 Jews from Bordeaux to Trancy and to Auschwitz, is then named the prefect of Paris that same year. And, you know, three years later, he'll oversee the massacre of probably over 200, certainly over 100 Algerians protesting the curfew and um, toward, you know, moving toward Algerian independence. So, you know, you can see these kinds of fascist circuits being reconstituted and what does it kind of mean to make work that that doesn't just lubricate the same kind of circuits. So, so I think this is really like the question that's animating the movement between those poems. And it's really the question that I hope to take up forever. I think, you know, both of these poems reach for the kind of torrential, consistent, unending temporality of like of atrocity and, and of fascism and, and this you know, this movement, you know, as, as you keep saying, which I think is is right. And I, I almost wish that you know I had read these aloud before we got on the pod here because it's striking how many points it feels like one should be able to stop in in Stretto, right? In in this thing that is so explicitly about this lack of interruption and and about this consistency how many interruptions and digressions there are and how deeply disturbing and kind of frustrating that is both trying to penetrate that to get to the context and the subject matter and also when kind of considering the syntactical possibility that would have been there in the constitution of fascism as, as you put it well it's really striking to me the idea of like revisiting and revising a poem in this way at all. It's super, super interesting to me. But the idea of like revising because of the social meaning of the poem and because of readings, it makes me think about, I mean, with respect to civil service in like two parts of the like, I've been thinking of it as like the paratext, but I actually don't know if that's quite right. Because in, in the book, there's like a part of the poetry comes even after the acknowledgments. So there's a way in which what would normally be thought of as paratext is absorbed into text. but the acknowledgments of the book end with a line that says, reader, you revised this text, thank you. 
which seems to speak back to one of the epigraphs of the book is by Javez. Um, and it says, the writer steps aside for the work and the work depends on the reader. So both of these are sort of articulations of sort of like elevating the the reader or destabilizing in the similar way that we were talking about, with like the lecture, the like relationship between poet and reader. I, I guess one other thing that makes me think about it is uh, there's a line when Amira is first introduced early in the collection that says something like, now you're responsible for her. But this idea of like the reader's responsibility to interpreting or understanding, because I think there's one way in which Salon choosing to, I don't know if it was right to say like disown the poem, but to like rewrite it seems like sort of say, it's sort of a like, my bad, like I fucked up, I wrote it this way and that I shouldn't have written it that way. I don't know if that's how he felt about it, but there's one way in which it's, it's a kind of like failure of a poetics. And there's another way in which it's like, oh, it's actually a failure of a reading public. And in a way, like, what's the difference in the sense of like, you're only writing toward some public, but it's partly in this idea of like, reading versus misreading. I don't know, it's not like the interesting question exactly is like, whose fault is it? But it it just seems to like, invite that question of if the meaning unfolds in the social encounter and the social context, there's just a kind of dispersed responsibility of what artworks are doing that is about a kind of interpretive community. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what Javis points to is the reader is sort of one of these configurations. You know, that is that is the work of reading is actually one of these social positions in relation to the text. And I think, you know, the question of dispersed responsibility feels, it feels incredibly important and sort of what civility primes us not to think about. You know, there's the idea that a couple of people are responsible for the machinations of the majority of violence. And in certain, you know, of course, like in certain ways of thinking, that's true. But I think it's also true that without the rest of us, this wouldn't function. And that feels also really important to hold. Nathan, I love that you brought that up. And uh, the exact line is, she's in your hands now. And it's in sequence in beginning of the book that for, for those who haven't seen it as as the pages turn this line drawing develops into these different configurations of the book and the door and the house and so forth and i love that sense of responsibility and then also just that literal act of you know, holding in your hands the book itself and how amira can sort of function as the place of possibility and discourse right not to not to reduce the the human nature of, would amira be a character and not a figure it's interesting to, to think about the ways that, that she functions there. Yeah, and then right after that, it's like, of course, Amira was wanted, which sort of poses the question to the reader about, like, wanted in the state sense, or, you know, what, what do we do with desire? How does desire sort of become a carceral form in state configurations, or are there other ways to think about how desire might position us in relation? Obviously there are, but the question's kind of set forth as the way into the poems. Thinking about, you know, the decontextualization of the text, I mean, I think of it sort of across any kind of, you know, leftist discourse that we have, the ability for something to be, you know, rendered toothless or to be codified so much. I mean, it's not lost on me, I think, kind of like the irony that I feel at, at in my position at, at Grey Wolf, you know, writing about civil service in, in a grant proposal or something like that, or, you know, attending a ceremony to celebrate the work, you know, in, in, in some kind of pageantry or you know, not, not to diminish that too much. And I want to avoid asking you too personally and then also asking you too broadly. But I mean, 
how do you navigate that? Or how, what, what do you feel like the possibility and the responsibility of the book and or the author are in this kind of you know, nonprofit industrial complex or, or, or whatever you want to call it through which the, the work is distributed? I feel like that's the question of everything. I mean, I feel an impulse to say something about trying to make a space within a space. But I also feel like in some way these are just unreconcilable. And I actually just want to like hold that and not actually try to reconcile them. I feel like, you know, I know Chance that I've like mentioned to you before, but, you know, Robin Cost-Lewis, who wrote really an incredible book, Voyage of the Sable Venus, you know, always asks if her book was worth the trees. And I think to take that question seriously in all of its configurations feels incredibly important. And to me right now, the possibility of getting to imagine this book in its fullest form alongside you alongside a whole team of people who are able to think about what this might be and that that itself is a kind of social space that feels incredibly valuable and that actually I I felt like almost necessary to bring even the language of the book into the form that felt like it was able to approach the questions that I wanted to but there are real contradictions there and I don't know that I'll necessarily move in relation to them in the same way in the future. But I think right now I just want to like hold the fact that those actually are contradictions. Which I think is apt given even just the, the first way that we opened up the discussion of the difficulty of finding, you know, the kind of moral authority in the text is it, it, it resists that or it, it doesn't stoop to that in a, in a way, which is exciting. Yeah. I think part of what really, excites me about the book is that it feels so much to me about the real sense of like possibility of re and unthinking things in directions like through poetry without feel it feels like really not sanguine or like necessarily optimistic about that it feels like it this to me comes back to like language that language feels like mobilized through the book in ways that sort of point to these i think it's like the question of like the way amira intrudes too of these like glimpses of like possibility but it's totalizing vision feels so i don't know the fact that the book doesn't let itself like fully open up into that or i don't know it feels related to me to like stretto in a way also where it's like these forms that sort of really try to like rethink and contest and break down but also feel very dark to me or like trapped in a way that to me feels just resonant in a kind of like realist way or a way that sort of I don't know it doesn't feel like self-comforting to me it feels like really an attempt to like take the measure of the possibilities inherent in certain tools without projecting a kind of sense of total rupture or total redemption within a broken field or something I I know that got like it's like very abstract (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense yeah I think I just keep coming back to the word unreconcilable. I think there really is a relationship between the kind of anti-extractive impulse of, of Stretto and this kind of desire not to be able to be reconciled with a world that continues to be spectacularly violent. I mean, Joris talks about Stretto as the poem where Salon made you take him at his word, you know, and that's sort of against the colloquial meaning of being taken at one's word but I think he really means that the form and the content are completely inextricable there's really not a way of thinking about one without the other 
and that it really would require kind of rearrangement of the entire world to think about what it would mean to read that poem. I don't know, in any kind of harmonious sense or in any kind of sense that it lives alongside the world at large without sort of holding this space of refusal or without sort of lifting up the underbelly that people want to cast aside and call the past. It puts me in mind of the motif of, of screams that kind of occurs through the book. To me, I was just thinking like, oh, a scream is the sound of like irreconciliation. I thought that was like one interesting point of connection to me between your book and the Jabez. If it's okay, I'll read just a little bit from the from the Jabez that we read. This section that begins the book of questions. This is a, I'll read the first section and the beginning of the second section. And each of these things is a quote and then an attribution. I gave you my name, Sarah, and it is a dead end road. Eugle's journal. I scream. I scream, Eugle. We are the innocence of the scream. Sarah's journal. What is going on behind this door? A book is shedding its leaves. What is the story of the book? Becoming aware of a scream. But it feels connected to me to points in civil service. And there's one in lecture on loneliness. And I know it's also in the house lecture. And there might be others I'm not thinking of where there are sort of like what I was thinking of, at least, is as like syntactical screams or, or points where there's like text blurring into itself. It made me think of there's also a similar move at the beginning of the book Austerlitz by Zabald, where there's a kind of like series of just the letter A that is like framed as a scream. But there's this this relationship between language and screaming. <laughs> it feels to me so much like it's speaking to that point of speaking of the unspeakable or irreconcilable. Yeah, I mean... One way that the sort of interest in relation takes shape is through the investigation of pronouns and in particular the IU relationship. And in the opening poem, you know, I'm trying to think through the kind of I as a sort of umbilical gesture and thinking a lot about this essay that M. Norbessi Philip wrote about mothering as a kind of position of radical hospitality. And she talks about it not in a gendered way, but really in a way of thinking about, you know, what would it mean to take seriously that we have all entered the world having been breathed for, you know, how would that position us in relation to the world as we come into it in relation to each other? And I think that sort of idea of an origin or that, that kind of profound possibility, which is actually the space of the most intense interrelation is really in a very different form, I think, what Jabez is interested in. You know, it's it's the kind of space before the vessel shatter and the creation of the universe. It's the name of God in a Kabbalistic sense of all of the letters of the language, you know, all of the words of a language put next to each other. And, you know, just thinking about a scream also is like the first relationship that one has to not something that's quite language, but voice or sound and entering the world that actually ruins language and might get back closer to this space of kind of primal relation, for lack of a better way of putting it, feels like a space I'm really interested in not trying to reach, but trying to approach or trying to to move toward. I don't want to soapbox on this too much, but I feel like my connection to that is how the book flirts with and is like a star-crossed lover of pure feeling of that impetus and of that drive and origin story that that can only be 
channeled through the political or through the poetic or through language itself. And I mean, I, I want to get this tattooed across my neck is, you know, theory is a scream slowed by vintage technology. And, and I think that that's true of the poetry too. I forget who said this, but somebody during the uprisings in 2020 here in Minneapolis said something like, you know, everybody out here would rather be making love. And it's like, totally. And, and I, I think I feel that way about, about the rigor in the work and about the connection to the scream and, and, and acknowledging that that's what's being accommodated or that's the, a position from which the theorist or the poet or the, the activist or the organizer is, is negotiating. It's making me think about laughter also. I was thinking about, I have twin infants who are now laughing, but not close to like quite close to speaking. I was just thinking about how strange it is that like humans scream as Claire was saying, and also like laugh so long before we speak. And I don't know enough what to say, whether it speaks to like a real sense of humor or people would say it's just an like autonomic biological response that gets filled in or something, but just all of these different kinds of relations to speech that precede language before things get a little more hemmed in. And I was thinking about it as similarly sort of like disruptive or disarticulative and also like social in a certain way. There's like a way in which like coming to speech is a kind of coming to connect with each other, but it's also a kind of alienation from other forms of connection. And the the book feels so alive to like trying to navigate spaces of articulation where we're together toward rearticulations through the use of forms and techniques that are like breaking down. I think there's also a relationship between speech and kind of questions about interiority that we were talking about earlier. I don't know. I'm thinking of Moten saying, you know, Fred Moten saying, you don't need a voice, but you need a sound. I don't know. I think the, the voice can be taken as a sort of unmitigated or direct translation of one's interior. And I, I think that's a kind of dangerous idea. The idea that we can or should aspire to have a transparent relationship to ourselves and to each other in a way that can be wholly knowable. And I think the scream or the laugh or kinds of other ways of voicing that are outside of speech or sounding rather that are outside of speech might get at some of those social aspects without the sort of social presumptions that structure some of these questions about relation that are really forms of distance that pass for forms of closeness. Yeah, so I I wanted to just, as we're kind of getting to the close, go back to the kind of set of questions around interiority and exteriority and what is like presumed to be socially mediated or not. I mean, it makes me think back to, you know, this phrase that appears in, in the lecture on time of a way out to be with otherwise. And just this question of sort of like, so much of civil service is located kind of within a version of like our world of a very like broken imperial world, but oriented toward a way out. I guess it felt to me like the the book feels not like despairing or pessimistic in the sense of like having a real sense that there is a kind of exterior and that we can be oriented toward a kind of future. But it also feels very cognizant of the sense in which I always think about the last 
aphorism in Adorno's Minima Moralia, where he talks a lot about like the work of critical theory and a kind of like inherent paradox of being oriented toward, he talks about like the cracks in the world being illuminated by the light of redemption. And so it's sort of like illuminated toward a, a redeemed world, but obviously speaks from the point of view of a not redeemed world and is plagued by that in the sense of the limitations of possibility of what even can be thought. And so, yeah, I, I wonder what we, what you make of Claire, what we make of the orientation of the book toward the future or an outside. And is it one that feels like it's optimistic or it's pessimistic or it's completely flat and realistic or what, you know, what the role of hope or possibility is for the book? You know, I, I think about the distinction that the philosopher of Emi Taiwo makes in his book, Reconsidering Reparations, where he talks about an attachment to a practice of hope, you know, as distinct from an optimistic orientation, you know, optimism and pessimism, he says, are kind of ways of presuming that you stand outside the world and betting on the outcome. And hope is a way of holding that the work that you do matters and shapes the possibilities of the outcome of the world. You know, it includes you in the future, really. And that sense, Civil Service is really a profoundly hopeful book in the sense of trying to build a social space or to collaborate with those who are building a social space for us to be in a future. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review and subscribe to Jewish Currents to get our beautiful summer print issue in your mailbox soon. You can also find us at jewishcurrents.org. Claire's phenomenal book, Civil Service, is out now from Grey Wolf Press, and you can buy it online from bookshop.org, which we'll link in the show notes, or at your local independent bookstore. Claire, would you mind bringing us to a close today by reading one more poem? Perennial. The archivist walks out of the book and into evening early. On his street, the houses line up like good teeth. The archivist's neighbor misses his wife. Thirty years ago, she quit the house and the twilight swallowed her. Still searching, the neighbor opens the belly of the neighborhood cat. The archivist, mind fast to his research, passes the plundered animal by. Books clutter his seeing, the knife a better eye. The flowers are screaming the old scream. The archivist opens his mouth to join them. The scream clarifies and elsewhere. He saw the flowers there, the tulips were red.